I am back again, Gary Meese, with episode 38 of The Case Against. I'm going to be talking today about what Jesse Miskelly told his defense attorney after his arrest before he went to trial and actually before um, they came up with the uh, the false confession strategy which came a couple of months after his arrest and I've got two of these I'm going to go over neither one of them are that long I'm not going to linger too much on this coughing a little bit so hopefully I don't go overboard and let me see let me let me do go ahead and do something on this recording to make sure okay well there's only so much normalization I can do right now yeah the chap this is from my book where the monsters go chapter is client went over to boy scout he was saying help us help us at a 2008 hearing Miskelly defense attorney Dan Stidham reviewed a confession that Jesse Miskelly had made to him on June 11th 1993 eight days after his initial confessions Stidham had not recorded the meeting, but he had kept notes on a legal pad. Arkansas Assistant Attorney General Kent Holt asked Stidham to read those notes. So these are the notes. Scene picture of three B's, which would be three boys, one week before murder at cult meeting. At cult meeting, he recognized three boys, but couldn't remember where he seen them until the picture was in paper. Three teens were in water. Damien Howard at three boys. C, which would be the client, which would be Miskelly, and Jason hit in the weeds. Damien hit blonde headed boy, and then the other two started hitting Damien. That's that's in the notes. And then, uh, according to this, uh, Miskelly and Baldwin came out, and they all started fighting. Uh, Miskelly, quote, started hitting boy in scout uniform, unquote. Uh, Jason, quote, started hitting the other boy, unquote. Uh, quote, Damien hit the blonde-headed boy with a stick, unconscious, bleeding a little bit, Damien then went to Jason, another kid. Damien started hitting this boy, and Jason went over to the blonde-headed boy and stuck his dick into the boy's mouth. And that's the end of the, 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 not, the those particular sets notes. And then, or quote, and then Miskelly, quote, kept hitting Boy Scout and knocked him out unconscious, still breathing, 
unquote. Jesse, quote, was sure he was still breathing, unquote. Uh, Miskelly, quote, went on to Damien and helped Damien hit the other boy. Damien went to Boy Scout, pulled his pants down, and screwed him in the ass. After Jason screwed blonde boy in the mouth, he screwed him in the butt. After he screwed him in the butt, he cut off blonde-headed boy's penis. After that, client realized it was time to stop. Client stopped hitting other kid. Client went over to Boy Scout. He was saying, help us, help us. Client told Damien, it's time to stop. Damien said, no, we're going to like this. Client helped Boy Scout up. Damien knocked Client and Boy down. Client told Damien and Jason to stop hurting boys. Client walked away 10 to 15 feet and then came back. Damien screwed Boy Scout again. Jason stabbed one of the little boys in the face. Client and Damien and Jason tied all boys up with their own shoestrings. Client choked Boy Scout until he quit moving. All but the bond was still alive. Client didn't choke bond. Damien and Jason threw them in water, saw boys kicking around in water. Client was afraid to go back and help, so he left. No one ever mentioned killing anybody in cult. Damien would try to say voodoo stuff and try to something dogs, cats, and snakes from the dead. Damien stuck his tongue in the skull of a bird. Now that was the end of the statement. Now this version of the attacks had more choking than the other versions of the confessions and had the Boy Scout, which would be Michael Moore, being sexually assaulted repeatedly, which differs from other versions and there's really not much physical evidence that Michael Moore was assaulted in the way that's described there. Autopsy results also found little evidence of choking. Stevie Branch had strikingly blonde hair. This version said, stated that the blonde boy was castrated. Chris Byers, whose hair was light brown, was the one who was castrated. Uh, Miss Kelly said here that all but quote, all but the blonde was still alive and that the blonde-headed boy had his penis cut off. Which is not, you know, if he's talking about Stevie Branch, that's just not correct. How, there's some qualifications in here and we'll get to them in a bit. <coughs> in the Rule 37 hearing that this is, where this statement was heard, Dame Stidham explained the statements. There are some notes from an interview with Miskelly in my file. It describes what he is telling me, which is that he's seen pictures. <laughs> he had seen pictures of the three boys a week before the murder at a cult meeting. The notes continued that the three teens were in the water. Damien hollered at them. Jason hid in the weeds. The boys started fighting with Damien. Jason started fighting with them. Damien stuck his penis in one boy's mouth. Miskelly hit one of the boys. Jason screwed the blonde boy in the mouth and in the butt. Miskelly realized it was time to stop. Miskelly helped one of the boys up. Damien screwed the Boy Scout. Jason stabbed one of the boys in the face. 
Miss Kelly choked the Boy Scout. Damien and Jason threw them in the water. They were kicking around. All of this was on June 11, 1993. I knew I had to ask him questions because the blonde boy wasn't the one who was castrated, but that is what Miss Kelly was saying. He was back and forth on what had happened. Miss Kelly simply couldn't give a narrative. Well, that's just not true, Dan Stidham. It's just not true. He describes Jason as the one who uh, describes the boy being cut in the face. Where did he even get that information? It wasn't public knowledge. And he was consistently say, he consistently says over and over again that Jason was the one who was using the knife. He seems to describe Damien as the one who's doing the primary sexual assaulting. Uh, Damien is the pri the initial attacker and he describes himself as being weirdly a defender of uh, Michael Moore in particular even though he <clears throat> as ridiculous as it seems because he beat him to the point that poor Michael was probably going to die from his head wounds but uh, he apparently drew the line at Jason using his knife and Damien sexually assaulting him. So even cold-blooded killers, I guess, have their standards. At least that particular one did. The other two obviously don't. Uh, and I'm not trying to make light of it or humorous about it. I'm not. I'm not at all. It, the, the whole thing is horrible. Uh, this is unpleasant to read. Um, Stidham, I, I'm not finished, quite finished with this. Stidham went on to say in the 2008 hearing, in reviewing the statements that Miss Kelly gave me, it was my view that if I had witnessed a traumatic event, I would at least know what time the killings occurred and get certain of the information that I was concerned about right. On the issue of sexual assault to the boys, Miss Kelly was all over the place, including what he had heard this text, the medical examiner testify about it. I think he was all over the map with things that would have been obvious to anyone who was actually there. Uh, worth pointing out that at this point, Miss Kelly had not heard the medical examiner testify about anything. That was almost a year away. So that's irrelevant. Uh, his descriptions of sexual assaults on the boys did vary widely. What is consistent is he describe he does continue to describe right up till the very end sexual molestation by Eccles in particular, but also Jason. And uh, the details become less violent and uh, you know the, the the description here is one sexual assault after another after another to the point that it 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 sounds incredible uh horrible and somewhat hard to believe and you know maybe if it was uh some sort of ser serial killer or some sort of cra a guy who was high functioning rapist if the, I guess if that's the right term maybe all that would work maybe the sheer mechanics of all that would work 
just it doesn't seem to be something that would be happening with these three teens on those banks in that afternoon. Uh, but something happened there, and Miskelly was trying to explain it as best he could, and he wanted to make Damien look bad, and he wanted to make himself look good. Let's be clear about that. Now, Stidham had an exaggerated sense of the observational and recollective powers of a bad-tempered teen who, with supposed handicaps, who had drunk most of a bottle of Evan Williams whiskey and then witnessed two of his friends molest and murder small boys. This is an extremely stressful event, even if he was willingly and happily participating. And he's already of somewhat diminished capacity. In many cases, he's talking about sexual assaults that he's not—he's not—he's not participating in these sexual assaults. He's only describing what he's perceiving while he's involved in his own uh, assaults on uh, his own victim. And he's drunk, very drunk. So all these things together. We can somewhat, you know, the fact that he remembers as much as he does and he gets some things, the cutting the boy in the face, that's not something that was known to the public. But it was known to Jesse Miskelly Jr. because he was there when it, when the, the Jason took the knife to the other boy's face and he didn't just, he didn't say, he took the, he didn't describe Michael Moore as being the one who, you know, he describes Michael Moore correctly as the one in the Boy Scout uniform. Were the, de were the details of Michael Moore's clothes known to the public then? I don't think they were. I'd have to go double check that. Maybe there was something that was said by somebody that maybe he picked up on. But he re refers to him as the Boy Scout. Michael Moore was wearing his Cub Scout clothes, that after his Cub Scout uniform this, that afternoon. He loved being a Cub Scout, and he liked wearing his uniform. Now, based on Stidham's notes, Miskelly gave a narrative with one glaring discrepancy about the blonde boy being castrated. This version again gave the telling detail that the boy whose penis was cut off was already dead before being placed in the water while the other two were still alive and literally kicking, which is what the autopsy results showed and, and he had not heard the re report of the medical examiner at that point. Certainly had not heard his testimony. Uh, Miskelly, as in earlier confessions, again said he left the scene in frustration and disgust after trying to stop the killing. Uh, he also repeated that Baldwin had delivered the cuts to the face and that he himself, Jesse Miskelly Jr., largely handled Michael Moore, including assault, assaulting him until he was unconscious. He correctly stated that the boys were tied up with their own shoestrings the detail about the picture of the three boys, which had been mentioned previously, came up yet again, and Eccles was once again painted as the leader of the cult. But 
it's notable here that Miskelly is not, once again, is not tying in the cult activities necessarily with these killings. Which is not to say they weren't occult killings as far as Damien Eccles was concerned, but they certainly don't seem to be occult killings as far as Jesse Miskelly Jr. is concerned. He said that, you know, they were talking about killing animals so forth, but apparently Jesse's saying, well, you know, we really didn't talk about killing kids at our occult meetings, uh, which is somewhat in contradiction to some other things he said. And as far as getting the blonde-haired Stevie Branch and the light brown-haired Christopher Byers mixed up, Jesse Miskelly Jr. later admitted, and all the evidence shows that he just never could keep the identities of these two boys straight. They seem to be interchangeable in his mind. And uh, in the admission to a fellow inmate, he actually found this to be humorous. Now, Dan Stidham had another audio, had an audio tape confession from Miskelly on uh, August 6th, August 19th, 1993, which is a couple of months later. Uh, my chapter here is when he left, the boys' clothes were piled up by the creek. That's the chapter in uh, where the monsters go. And this particular audio tape confession uh, Miskelly made no attempt to establish an alibi, instead confirming details of the crime and discussing whether he should work out a plea deal. In other words, he was talking at that point as if he were guilty and what's the best deal he could hope to get out of it. Uh, Miskelly continued to confirm that Baldwin and Eccles were involved in devil worship, but he minimized his own involvement, saying, before the murder ever happened, I always stayed around my house and people behind me. We always went to dais and stuff and practiced wrestling and stuff. Now let's give the let's give this uh, a little bit of a concession to uh, recent statements by Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles. Uh, they weren't very very close friends with Jesse Miskelly Jr. Uh, Jesse Miskelly Jr. was involved in wrestling and. Uh, with he, and we're not talking about school team wrestling. We're talking about aspirations to be some sort of professional wrestler, which at that time wrestling was, was a huge thing in the the mid south area, the Memphis area. Uh, and it makes sense that a kid from a trailer park with any kind of ability in that in that area would hope to become a, a wrestler. It's easier career path in some ways perhaps than being a, a pro athlete. At least it looks that way in the front end. It probably looks like it's more fun. You know, it's probably not, but it sure looks that way. Instead uh, of explained, explained uh, the Skelly relayed in that conversation, he's talking about the conversation of August 19th, that he had never seen the victims before and never saw them riding their bikes. Now, earlier he'd said he, other 
things he'd said he'd seen them riding their bikes. He then said that he had seen one bike. He never did anything with their bikes. He had left walking by the Blue Beacon, which is the truck wash that was next to the woods, the Robin Hood Hills woods where the murders occurred. He would, uh, to get back to his home, uh, the most logical direction he would have taken would have would be by the Blue Beacon out to the service road and then on up to Highland Trail Park. It's about two miles. It would take you probably, you know, he said he was running, so maybe, you know, and we don't know how far he ran before he stopped. So we really don't know how long it would take him, to, it would have taken him, but it's roughly two miles you know, 30, 40, 45 minutes, maybe, to get home, maybe. He then said he had seen one bike. He never did anything with their bikes. He had left walking by the Blue Beacon. On the tape, Miskelly said that he did not recall a stick in the creek. Uh, you know, there were sticks that were used to... to Stick the clothing down into the uh, mud. And I don't know if that is a detail that Stidham brought up to Miskelly or if Miskelly's just volunteering that. Sounds like something that, if he says he didn't recall it, sounds like maybe Stidham was asking him, Do you know anything about these sticks in the creek? <laughs> and Miss Kelly saying he doesn't recall anything about that. And that would have been part of the cleanup afterward, which almost certainly would have been Damien's uh, little deal that he was doing, which is why he was still working around uh, the area uh, late enough to be seen by the Hollingsworth family. Uh, Eccles carried a carved stick, but Miss Kelly did not remember if he had it with him that day. When he left, the boy's clothes were piled up by the creek. Baldwin had a pocket knife, a buck knife. Baldwin's knife was one he sometimes carried with him. Okay, that's end of Stidham's statement on that. Miskelly's basic story didn't vary as he continued to talk. Many details persisted throughout many confessions. Uh, but a two-pronged narrative emerged as Miskelly continued to reassure his father, Big Jesse, that he had nothing to do with the killings, while he freely talked, at this point anyway, to police and lawyers about his role in the murders. And that's it for now. Thanks for listening. And uh, since I'm like many other people, I'm stuck at home. I have fewer distractions than usual. I'm, I hope to be cranking out more episodes, if not on a daily basis, maybe something close to that. I'd really like to get this done soon uh, and move on to doing some other things. Uh, involving other cases of innocence, innocence fraud and this this takes up 
This takes up a certain amount of time, but it also just takes up a certain amount of energy and headspace. And so uh, I'll, I'll be happy to move on, be, feel completed, feel like I've virtually completed the West Memphis Three story, and we I, and move on uh, to some other things. Anyway, uh, and you know there are there are uh, there's March twenty eighth. Bob Ruff is going to have his show on uh, oxygen. Apparently, it's two parts. And the following weekend, I believe it's the following weekend, April fifth. That would be that the ID network is going to have investigation discovery channel is going to have something, uh, a, a show or a series about the West Memphis Three. Uh, the rough show, based on a preview I saw today, looks pretty darn terrible. But um, we shall see. I don't see how it could be good with him involved. The ID, the other show, looks like it's going to be more of the same old, same old. But you know, we—I don't really know. Maybe it, maybe it'll be better than I think it. Maybe it'll have a more original take on it than uh, I think it's going to have. But I really doubt that. I really, really doubt it. It's possible. Anyway. Thank you. Talk to you again soon.